Welcome to the Radical Remission Project Stories That Heal podcast. My name is Kelly A. Turner, and I'm a PhD cancer researcher, New York Times bestselling author of Radical Remission and Radical Hope, and the founder of the Radical Remission Project. In this podcast, it is our honor to bring you inspiring healing stories directly from radical remission survivors themselves, as well as from the amazing doctors and healers they work with. Welcome to today's episode of the Radical Remission Project's Stories That Heal podcast. I'm Kelly A. Turner, author of Radical Remission and Radical Hope, and I'm joined here today with my co-hosts and the co-directors of the Radical Remission Project, Liz Curran and Carla Mansgeroux. Hi, Carla and Liz. Hi. Hey, Kelly. We are so excited to introduce you to today's podcast guest, none other than Radical Remission Stage 4 cancer survivor, Chris Carr. She's been called a force of nature by O Magazine and was named a new role model by the New York Times. Chris is also a member of Oprah's Super Soul 100, recognizing the most influential thought leaders today. Her work has been featured in Forbes, The Wall Street Journal, Glamour, Good Morning America, The Today Show, Super Soul Sunday, OWN, and The Oprah Winfrey Show. Chris teaches people how to take back their health and live like they mean it. Her work will change the way that you live, love, and eat. So, Chris, we're so happy to have you on the Radical Mission podcast. Thank you for being here with all of your book promotion. We really appreciate your time. Thanks for having me. It's so exciting to be here with you all. Yeah. So... We want to talk about, obviously, your cancer remission, um, but we also want to talk about your new book. So we'll cover both of those in this podcast. We know you've lived with stage four EHE cancer for 20 years. And for our listeners, EHE is a type of sarcoma. It's epithelioid hemangioendothelioma. And 20 years you have been living with this cancer. Now, many listeners uh, may or may not know the technical medical definition of remission. So remission does not actually mean no evidence of disease. No evidence disease, or NED, is a type of remission that many cancer patients hope for. But to be in remission, you don't have to have NED. So remission technically in the medical textbooks means stable disease that is not causing any problems. And that is the kind of remission that you've had for 20 years. Is that right, Chris? Yes, although this is the very first time anybody has ever called it remission. Um, and, and it's not a term that I actually use, um, partly because you know, I had to learn to make peace with cancer. And cancer is such a, you, you, you all know this. It's like, are you, if you're a survivor, that means it's gone. Like there, it, it's so complicated that I have always just called myself a thriver. Um, partly because I, when somebody says, you know, my second book, what I had survivor in the title, for example, and a lot of people would be really confused by it. Um, and so, but I really love the definition that you just laid out because there was a long time where I said to myself, if I'm not in remission, then my life is on pause. Like if I'm not cured, then I, you know, once I'm cured, then I'll do X, Y, Z. And so, you know, probably 10 years into my journey, I let go of all of that. And, um, 
But yes, technically, I have been living with stage four cancer for 20 years now, and I have a slow-growing cancer. Um, and sometimes it can be aggressive and and it can change. And so we've just been tracking it. And my, as my doctor said a long time ago, we're going to watch and wait and let cancer make the first move. And um, and that's when I decided to go off and watch and live and start to learn how to not only take care of myself, but create a life that I enjoyed living, regardless of the fact that I have a disease. Oh, I think that's beautiful. And I, I love the use of the word thriver. There is a lot of confusion about what does survivor mean? What does remission technically mean? So even though from a medical standpoint, you are absolutely in remission because your disease is stable and or dormant. Um, I love that you're thriving and that you're not watching and waiting, you're watching and living. And certainly based on all your books and your personal experience, the actions that you've taken while living, I believe, and I'm sure you believe too, have really helped to keep the, the cancer manageable and dormant and at bay. So tell us about briefly about your diagnosis and how the 10 radical remission factors from my research have impacted your healing journey over the years, if at all. Yeah, so I was diagnosed with stage four sarcoma in 2003 on Valentine's Day. And because I was told there's no cure and there's no treatment and there still really isn't, um, it was that wake up call for me to say, well, what can I do? You know, I'm just supposed to kind of wait between doctor's visits and what live in fear and anxiety and, you know, freak out. Um, there's something I need to do to participate to at least first and foremost, help with my mental well-being um, because no human likes to feel out of control. And what we learn, especially as cancer patients, is you, you're out of control a lot of the time, right? We crave certainty, but it's not something that truly any of us can experience. Life is uncertain. That's the nature of it. And so my first stop was Whole Foods, you know, I, and I was not a vegetable eater. I was a fast food Burger King lover and a lot of other things. Um, but I thought, well, you know, the one thing I can control is what I eat, what I put in my body. And so that was the beginning of my journey right there. It was awkward. I didn't know how to make any of the stuff. I didn't like any of the stuff. I cried when I was, you know, cr cruising through the produce aisle. Like I had to go on a pretty deep transformative, transformative journey with just with cooking first and foremost. But then as you all know, like once you start to reset your palate and you start to actually feel better and you start to eat real food and all, maybe some of the other symptoms that you've experienced like constipation and things like that start to change and clear up and all of a sudden you have more energy. It's sort of, it's like you made a clean spot, you know, it's like, hey, you gotta kind of gotta keep on going. Right. So that was how it started. And and really, after not long after that, um, I quickly realized that it's not just about what you're eating, it's about what's eating you. Um, and for me, a big part of the journey was learning how to manage the knowledge that I live with stage four cancer. And that's when practices like mindfulness and meditation and um, journaling and, you know, a lot of the very helpful stress management lifestyle techniques became as much of a focus for me as the food. Yeah, absolutely. And I find that in every single radical remission survivor that I interview and study is that they often start, they often start with the physical factors, which from the radical remission research is diet, 
exercise or movement and then herbs and supplements. And it's, it's sort of easy to latch onto something that's tangible and physical. It's like, okay, yeah. what can I do? I can put this into my mouth and that's going to help. Um, and then once they sort of get that diet under control or transformed in your case mm -hmm. and they get the movement going, then the rest of the journey for the people I study is really a mental game, right? So the seven of the 10 radical mission healing factors are mental, emotional, spiritual. So I'm not surprised that, you know, you, you, you went to whole foods first. And then, as you said, you focused on what's eating you and yeah, focused on the mental stuff. Absolutely. Well, speaking of mental stuff, um, your new book is I'm not a morning person. I am happy to have a, a Yes. A spanking new copy of it before it's been released. I feel grateful to have gotten a sneak peek. So in this book, I'm not a morning person spelled M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G. You write about losing your father recently to pancreatic cancer and the four years that you helped him through treatment and navigating his diagnosis. Did you use some of the same radical mission healing factors that you used to, to get through your own health journey did any of those come into play as you were being a caregiver to your father, either things that you offered to him as things that might help his, his journey or things that you did for yourself to help yourself as a caregiver? Yeah, that's a great question. You know, I remember when I was newly um, vegan and, you know, newly diagnosed and I went vegan and I was so excited about the diet. I was really feeling so much better and um, to be 100% vegan. It's really about eating whole foods and more plants, right? But it was such a radically different diet than what I had been consuming. And I was the, at home for the first Thanksgiving and um, my parents had put out, I was macrobiotic at the time, had worked hard to create a macrobiotic Thanksgiving, which by the way, is really hard. It's really hard, right? And yeah. oftentimes it's not going to taste good if you don't know how to make macrobiotic food, right? So, right. but they work so hard. And then I was so excited, but then out came the turkey. And at the time, you know, I decided it was a really good opportunity to give, to stand on a soapbox and wag my finger and tell the, you know, give a little speech that nobody hired me to give <laughs> and animal rights and well, and the environment and health and all this kind of stuff. And my dad took me aside afterwards. And he was like, look, I know you're passionate about this. And we're willing to try it too. like not all the way, but we're willing to try a lot of it. But if you want your message to go far, you have to meet people where they are. Mm. And I, I'll never forget that. And so when I, when my dad was newly diagnosed, of course, I sprang into action because this is the last person I'm going to lose to cancer, right? And I've worked with many cancer patients over the years, and obviously I am one myself. Um, and we went into the, we were at the hospital and, you know, the, the dietitian comes in and oftentimes they're not on the same page as someone like me who, who's right. going to go in a different direction, even though I don't have a, a dietitian letters behind my name. Um, but she looked at me and she goes, wait a minute, you're Chris Carr? Like Chris Carr. And I was like, yeah. And she goes, oh my gosh, you're in great hands. Just do whatever she tells you to do. Awesome. That's wonderful. I'm so glad that the, yeah. the medical establishment knew of you and also were supportive of the wonderful whole foods, plant-based 
recipes and lifestyle that you espouse because usually the hospital dietitian will come in and say, are you drinking, you know, four bottles of Ensure a day? And then they leave. So yeah. how wonderful that the medical establishment is, is becoming more and more open. It was wonderful, but here's what the, where this goes next is he wanted nothing to do with it. So, mm. and what I've learned that is that people aren't projects, right? You can't, the only time, and one of my favorite sayings is, that I say oftentimes and try to remind myself of is the only time you can change somebody is when they're in diapers. Mm, and it was a good one. My, yeah, it wasn't my responsibility. What my responsibility was, was to show up to deepen our relationship, to be fully present, to be willing to talk about difficult things, to um, be as loving as I possibly could. And as his final days were approaching and I was sort of the guardian of the gate, making sure that the only, only energy that was around him was the energy of love. And all of that is such a big part of our healing journey. You know, with him going through the treatments that he had to go through because his cancer was so aggressive, even to just slow things down. You know, a lot of the the suggestions that I had and the, the little smoothies would I would that I would make for him, he couldn't hold down. Like they were not appealing to him. You know, the yeah. supplements it was, it was it was not appealing to him and not something that his system could handle. And so, I share that because anybody out there who feels as though they're failing unless they do it right there's no such thing as failure when it comes to this. It's one of the things that frustrates me the most about our black and white societal paradigm. You're either a winner or you've lost your battle. And yeah. you can be healing, difference between healing and curing, right? You can be healing into the moment that you pass and beyond. And that is what I saw him do. Hmm. Yeah, that's something that I talk about in Radical Remission as well, is that that difference between healing and curing. And I think it's it's so important for people to understand because to to cure a disease, okay, that's that's a scan result. You know, that's a, a something you get on a piece of paper from a doctor. But to work on healing your life and healing your heart and healing your gut and healing your relationships, that is a lifetime endeavor. Yeah. And it goes on and on regardless of what that piece of paper says about what's in your blood and what's in your body, you know. Yeah. That's beautiful. Carla, I wanted you to jump in because I know that you also had a father go through a healing journey. Right. Yeah. So I can really um, resonate with Chris's experience. My 74-year-old father had lung cancer and he wasn't willing to adopt lifestyle changes, the healthy things that, you know, might have might have helped him from my perspective. Um, and I'm curious, Chris, what was your experience like as a cancer thriver who then became your father's caregiver as he dealt with his own cancer? You know, I think it it expanded my heart bigger than I thought it could actually get. And it taught me a lot more about healing at a much deeper level. And um, one of my dad's sayings that he would share with me is, make your golden years now and figure out what your more like this moment that you want to have is and really don't put it off. And 
what was amazing for me was seeing him retire and get to a place where he thought, okay, now I'm going to play more golf and spend more time with my brother and, you know, travel with my family. And here he was dying of pancreatic cancer. And, but in that four and a half year journey, I think that there were a lot of things that he did that extended his life and also the quality of his life, including medical treatments. Um, but the biggest thing that I saw was it's not about the quantity of time. It's about the quality. So even in those four and a half years, I watched him really making them golden. And I think that's the thing that's probably stuck with me the most and and become more of a compass for me that helps me make decisions about what I want to do and what I don't want to do, who I want to spend my time with and who I don't want to spend my time with, and be really clear about that, even if I disappoint people. Beautiful. Yeah, good for you. And then from reading the new book, I'm not a morning person. It seems like losing your father to cancer had a profound impact on how you view end-of-life care. So can you tell us what you learned from the perspective of the caregiver about end-of-life? Yeah. You know, I have been there when people and dear pets of mine have passed. Um, I haven't been as deep in the experience as I was these past, you know, four and a half, five years now. And I think that there was a part of me that was very afraid of putting my affairs in order and, you know, all of that. And, and it was the last thing I ever wanted to think about, even as somebody who lives with cancer and the experience of being able to meet and work with incredible hospice nurses and the radical kindness and candor that they brought to our house when he was in the final stages and he was in hospice. And, you know, then as the weeks went on and the days went on and it was clear, the hours went on um, and we had somebody around the clock teaching us what to do, um, how to manage his pain, how to be present um, it, it was incredible. And I had the privilege of being there when he took his last breath. And as he passed it, it, I heard this beautiful sound come from his mouth. It was like a, a little kid. I, I, I always will hear it. And it sounds to me like a, like a little kid who's like jumping off a cliff, you know, and like with excitement, like fear, but also excitement. And then this huge smile spread across his face and uh, I, if I'm ever in a place where I'm afraid of that time and that moment that will happen for me too, I think about that smile. But I also think about as a 52-year-old woman, it's never too early to think about how you want to die and who you want there, who you don't want there, and and just kind of live into and think about that because it's going to happen. And oftentimes everybody's freaked out. The plans aren't figured out. You know, there's a lot of stuff that that can pile up and be make that transition so stressful. You know, it's like, we work so hard to bring children into the world and get everything ready for them. But then as we're leaving, we're all scrambling and traumatized. Mm-hmm. And that's not what I I don't want to have that experience. And I think many, none of us want to have that experience. So if you're afraid of, if you're afraid of this conversation, I encourage you to 
do your best to warm up to it a bit because I think you can make your transition really beautiful if you do. Yeah, what a gift from your father and and such a beautiful idea to actually prepare for our death as we prepare for a newborn's birth. I love that. I I think I, I want to start a trend. Let's all do that. <laughs> so, well, we have we have nine months to usually nine months or maybe a little less notice to prepare for the incoming soul, right? And so you you get things ready and you put things in order and you get your finances ready and you get the house ready. And I think it's a beautiful idea, Chris, to encourage people to do the same thing for their own transition, whenever that may be. Yeah. And what's what's fascinating, Chris, is that you've had two now really intense experiences that not everybody gets to have at your age of being forced to confront death. And some people might say, well, I don't want that. That's unfair. Like, why me? I don't want to have to think about death when I'm in my 20s. I don't want to have to think about death when I'm in my 50s. But it's what I'm hearing from you and what I gathered from your book is that it's actually a gift to be forced Mm -hmm. to think about the fact that we're all going to transition at some point, whether it's, you know, earlier than we hope to hope to because of cancer or whether it's, you know, when we're all 105, the transition is going to come and to know that and keep, as I say in Buddhism, keep death on your shoulder Mm. as a way to make life as full as possible, to make the golden years, to make every year a golden year. Mm -hmm. It's, it's, it's quite profound that you, you have had these experiences that really um, bring life and death to the forefront in such impactful ways. Mm. Thank you. Looking for a thoughtful, heartfelt gift for someone with cancer? The Radical Remission Project has partnered with woman-led small business Rest and Heal to create lovely care packages for you to send. They feature the Radical Remission and Radical Hope books alongside natural wellness products, all of which are non-toxic and sourced from women-owned, Black-owned, and New York State businesses. We know our community is passionate about spreading the radical remission healing factors, and these care packages are a great way to get knowledge into the hands of those who need it most. Visit restandheal.com forward slash shop to purchase or learn more. That's restandheal.com forward slash shop. Being diagnosed with a serious health challenge can be emotional and overwhelming. At Radical Remission, we believe no one needs to face a diagnosis alone. Our certified health coaches work one-on-one or in small groups to support people living with a diagnosis to integrate the 10 healing factors of Radical Remission. Our team of coaches include national board certified health coaches, doctors, nurses, and other medical practitioners, as well as mental health providers. Our coaches meet each person where they are on their healing journey to offer support, accountability, and goal setting in a positive manner. Check out RadicalRemission.com to find your health coach and connect with them to learn more about what it might look like to work together. See the show notes for links to find a coach on RadicalRemission.com. Liz, I wanted you to jump in too. Do you have any questions for Chris? Yeah, I was um, I was just going to say that um, I loved in the book, the five pillars of wellness that you write about. 
and how aligned they are with the 10 healing factors from radical remission. Um, why don't you share with our listeners your five pillars? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you know, all of this beautiful lifestyle medicine work and pillars and blueprints and foundations, you know, there's intersections because we're all these are very similar universal um, paths to well-being. But for me, and what I teach in my wellness community is the five pillars are about what you're eating, thinking, drinking, and how you're resting and renewing. Um, and they rest on a foundation of stress management. And so the point isn't to be perfect. The point is to be mindful. The point is to optimize and not to be rigid because what you're eating, drinking, thinking, resting, and renewing, none of that really works as well if you're so stressed out and you're really struggling and you're being really tough on yourself. You're trying to be perfect because you're ultimately driven by fear. Oh, if I don't do it right, then I won't be healthy. Then therefore I won't survive. And I think that that's like the worst place that any of us can be. That's why I like to say it's about staying mindful about each one of these areas, right? Are we staying hydrated? It's simple, right? Are we eating more vegetables and more of the plants than not, right? It's simple. It's like, I'm not going to say it has to be 100% plant-based, but plants are one thing we can all agree on. And if we don't agree on them, I'm suspect. <laughs> <You know? laughs> um, if we're if we're struggling with managing the thoughts of fear and ruminations and anxiety, that's a place we want to focus on. You know, that might be a place that we want to get some therapeutic support with. We want to maybe take up a meditation practice, something to help us stay grounded in the present. Because like this morning I made my appointment for my scans and I'm going to have them in December and way back a million years ago when I got cancer, that would be so stressful to me, you know, yeah. even just knowing it was coming and, and being able to manage that anxiety and manage those fears or those what ifs. It's human to have these emotions, but it's not healthy to let them suffocate you. Right. Um, and so rest, obviously, we know we want a strong immune system. We should be focused on how much sleep we're getting and the quality of that sleep and renewal you know, you, you, you said it earlier, it's for me, the renewal pillar is two prong one, it's 100% about movement. Um, and the other part of the renewal pillar is play. So what brings you joy? Oftentimes, it's with other people. It's in community, it's seeing your best friend It's zooming, it's hanging out with all of you. It's it's the things that make us happy. It's my hummingbirds and making sure that the feeders are full so they can zoom around my head. Like, they're simple things. But if we're not prioritizing our play, and ultimately our joy, um, then I think that that's a piece that we want to focus on because joy is the medicine, right? Joy changes us at a cellular level. And the more difficult the time that we're experiencing, the more we need to prioritize that joy and almost fight for it. You know, it's like, I will get in the ring to fight for joy. Um, I love that. Very few things I will do that for, but joy is one of them. Yeah. Yeah. Yep, absolutely. I, I love the... Um, the focus of those being kind of like linked to our releasing suppressed emotions factor, right? So yeah. um, when I go to those places, I really, I love the word curiosity, looking mm -hmm. at things through the lens of curiosity, because there's just no judgment there. And if you're just curious, you know, 
am I going to make the right decision or am I going to make the wrong decision about what I eat, what I do? Um, just sitting with curiosity kind of like allows the message to come back in with a little bit more fluidity rather than just worrying and panicking that you're going to make the right or wrong decision. So I love that you said that. that. I just want to hop on that because that's so powerful and so important. And I think the key to so much of this, when I was going through this experience and also writing about it, um, the subtitle is braving loss, grief, and the big messy emotions that happen when life falls apart. Right. Yeah. My therapist said something at the time that will always stick with me. She said, when the grief train pulls in the station, it brings all the cars. And it's like, shizzle, you don't even think is going to go together. And old grief and old trauma and old drama, it's all coming forward because most of us, you know, we 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 are steeped in a grief-phobic, messy emotions-averse society. Like go on Instagram, right? You're going to see what society tells us to be like. And, and then these big moments happen and few of us have the tools to navigate storms of that magnitude right? The mental storms, the physical the storms, the emotional storms, all of that. Yeah. And so the fact that you said the word curiosity, that was a lifeline for me. Curiosity also will lead me to compassion because I can be a real jerk sometimes, just like everybody else. And I remember going through this period and I write about it in the book where I was really dealing with a lot of rage, like historical rage. And if it's historical, if it's his, my therapist also has another saying, if it's hysterical, it's historical. You know, I, was like, I love that one. I love it. My, uh, my therapist uses that as well. It must be in a text somewhere, <laughs> somewhere. Right. But I was like, damn, is that true? Um, but instead of feeling shame around this rage, approaching it with curiosity was my way through it because I did feel so much shame around it and so much I'm not supposed to have this feeling and I'm certainly not supposed to express it right it's not so much what's wrong with you you know it's it's just observe it and yeah and be curious because like every single emotion is information it's an indicator so if I can approach that emotion with curiosity, I can say, what, what are you pointing me towards? This is so exciting as opposed to what's wrong with you. You freak, you know what I mean? Like, because usually the voices in my head, I don't know about yours. The ones in my head can be pretty mean sometimes. Uh Uh-huh. Yep. Yeah. Right. But curiosity can kind of point them in a healthier direction. Right. Yep. Yeah. Hey, what's, I would love to hear what is Chris Carr's go-to for um, some kind of like in the heat of the moment, stress reduction, you have like a breathing technique that you like, or is there a, a, you know, what do you do to kind of reel yourself back in, in those heated moments? Yeah. First of all, I explode inappropriately. (laughs) Um, And when that's over, I usually mop it up. Um, <laughs> no, uh, uh, that is not what happens anymore, thankfully. Um, but that's our kind of our go-to, right? We either implode or we explode yeah. or, you know, something in between, which usually happens around stuffing. And, um, for me, you, you said it, it'll be breathing. It'll be usually like a box breathing exercise where I'm inhaling for four counts, holding for four counts, exhaling for four counts, holding for four counts, you know, or changing the channel. You get triggered by something, you get a bad scan result, you you're on the you're on the hold with your hospital for 37 years and then they hang up on you. 
you know, and you're just like, oh, I can't handle it. You know, it's like, change the channel, go outside, take a deep breath, go for a walk, move your body. I mean, it's like some of my darkest moments and you think you can't survive them. It'll be amazing when I put like a 10 minute hit workout on and just start sweating and moving. And all of a sudden, it doesn't mean the pain is gone, but it just means that I'm like back, I'm back in my body, I'm back in my center, and I'm back in a place where I can make decisions and not be so reactive. Yeah, that makes sense. Yeah. Yeah, when you know, you talk in your new book about sort of the grief coming to you in unexpected moments and and very sort of suddenly and you know, not at, not at appropriate times sometimes, you know, like when it's inconvenient. Um, and obviously that happens with cancer patients as well, when they're dealing with the grief of, of their diagnosis, what is your advice to anyone going through a grieving process, whether, whether they're grieving, you know, the diagnosis that they're having to deal with, or they're grieving the loss of a loved one, when that grief hits you in, in places that's inconvenient, what, what's your advice to them about how to handle that? that deluge of grief that suddenly just sweeps over them? Yeah, that's such a good question. I mean, I have a, a lot of tips in the book, but I will tell you what just came to me right now because I had an experience yesterday of it. So I'm obviously promoting my book, which means our team is writing a lot of emails about the book and doing a lot of social media and doing a lot of the things that we do to get our message out there in the hopes that somebody will read it. And there's a chapter in my book about pet loss. And um, we were talking as a team about how to handle it. And, you know, if we want to send out an email that's kind of focused on pet loss. And one of the things that I didn't write about and I haven't really shared with my community is that both of my dogs have passed since I wrote the book. So this year. And so that's a whole other loss, right? The losses don't stop. It's just part of life, you know, it's like, but I feel with this work, I've been able to certainly handle them a lot better. But anyway, my point here is that one of my team members said, oh, do you want to talk about some of the things that you discussed in the pet loss chapter around your dog, Buddy, because that chapter focuses on him. And I got this overwhelming feeling that Lola, who's kind of like my child, and not that all my children aren't special, right? But every mother has their favorite, let's be honest. Um, or at least I do. <laughs> I had, I, I felt like, oh, I can't, I don't want to talk about what I wrote about. If I'm going to talk about this, I want to talk about her. And I started crying. And so I'm in a big team meeting, right? Yeah. A lot of people are there. And I realized, I just said, oh, you know, thank you. Thank you for having this experience with me. I didn't say I'm sorry for crying. I said, you know, thank you for being in this experience with me. And it's not my job to make an environment that suits you. It's just wow. not I say that to my team, but it's not my job to create an environment where you feel comfortable. My job is to feel my feelings. Wow, Chris, that's a bumper sticker right there. <laughs> that's really powerful. Yeah. How, how did your team take it when you said that? I mean, I didn't say that part to them, but they work with me. So they know because like we, 
we cry, we talk, we connect, we, we are creators. We, we work in a creative field. So to me, all of these emotions are crayons in the, in the toolkit. I mean, you know, as an actress, it's just, you have to be able to access all the different parts of you. And I think we, unfortunately, we do live in a society where only certain parts of ourselves are deemed appropriate. Yeah. And that's what gets us into trouble. Oh, I think that's beautiful. So for anyone out there who's listening to this and is grieving anything, a pet loss, a recent diagnosis that's scary to them or the loss of a loved one, just that idea of like, it's not your responsibility to make your surroundings comfortable for others. Like feel it, feel your feelings. Yeah. Wow. What can you imagine if our society wholeheartedly embraced that? How much less therapy would be needed? <laughs> yeah. Right. Yeah. And I think also how much honest, how, how much more honesty and integrity we would have and also compassion for each other. Cause truth is, is that when I'm going through a tough time, I know somebody else is out there is going through that tough time too. And if we're all walking around pretending like everything's fine, I mean, that's, I feel like the beginning of loneliness right there. That's mm-hmm. the it's root a, cause. It's a disservice. It's a disservice. Yeah. Yeah. And that's, that's one of the things I really love about this book. I'm not a morning person is Chris, you really allowed people to see how messy your grief process was and is, (laughs) but it's not, that's not unique to you. You know, as I'm reading it, I'm like, yeah, thank you for finally being honest about how Mm. awfully messy and extreme a grieving process is. And and I don't I don't I don't know anyone who's been so vulnerably honest about it to date. So I suggest everyone go read it because it's you were really vulnerable Thank about you. yeah about the the roller it's a roller coaster. Yeah, I appreciate that. You know, I set two intentions for the book, and one was to normalize these experiences and to allow people to feel less alone, and the other one was to push myself as a writer. And the way I could push myself was to be as honest as I could and not present like a polished version of what it was in the hopes that people think I'd have my shit together more. Um, and I was like, yeah, I'm not doing that. <laughs> I'm so glad you didn't. I'm so glad you didn't because none of us have our shit together. Excuse my language, but we, you know, we don't, especially when you're going through something as extreme as the loss of a parent. So for you to not show us some polished put together, here's my plan and this will help you too. But to say, here was my experience and it was a ride. Yeah. And if I, by sharing it, I can offer any sort of support or comfort to you, then here it is. I'm sharing it. And it's, it's really, it's really a brave, vulnerable share. The world is going to be better for it. Thank you. Um, So just as we're wrapping things up here, your dad, who I wish I would have met in person, because from your book, he just sounds like the most amazing person. He shared so many life lessons with you in his final days. Which one, which one or ones have meant the most to you? Well, I shared one earlier, which was, you know, make your golden years now. And I think that's just so important. And every single one of us can benefit from that in such a big way. Like, you know, that is the home run quote of his, I think, from the book. But there's two other ones one's really funny and one's very practical he was a very practical man and um so I'll start with the practical one and then I'll end with the funny one okay so the practical one you know he was my mentor and he still is and um 
he was a great businessman and uh, I'd always come to him with problems. <laughs> I'd be like, I'm not sure what to do in this moment. I don't know what to do about this. And he'd always, you know, he didn't even need to know a lot about what I do, but he would find somehow just knowing enough around the periphery. He'd give me the exact advice that I needed. And he was always right, which used to drive me crazy. <laughs> and so, but one of the things he always said to me was do the hard thing first. Uh, nice. uh, you know, it's like, and we know that, but how often do we get to the start of our day and we start to bite off the low hanging fruit and, and then we wonder why things aren't moving forward in the way that we want them to. And it's because the hard thing first usually takes the most guts to make the most strength, the most get it done, the most double down, like Get it out of the way because you will feel so much better and it opens up so much space for you and it creates a domino effect of change in your life where the little stuff actually doesn't. Yeah, I love that because, you know, the hard stuff is out there. It's always baked in fear, right? Yeah. We call it hard because you're afraid of something about it. You're afraid of failure. You're afraid you're not good enough. There's some level of fear in anything that we label hard. And so what your dad's nugget of wisdom there is telling us is like, if you face the fear and make yourself walk through the fear, the rest of your day is going to feel awesome. And how true is that? Like how relieved do we feel when we do the scary thing, right? And it's done. And we're like, oh, okay, I got that done. Now I can do my five to-do list things that are so, super yeah. easy to stop, you know? It's so true. It's so universal. I love that you shared that. Spot on. And then the last one I end the book with, I, he says, make sure you stop and smell the lizards. Now I'm going to explain this because he was on morphine. And so he was mixing the metaphors. It's stop and smell the roses. But he was like, love, make sure you stop and smell the lizards. <laughs> and so those little lizards, you know, I'm doing my best to sniff them as much as I can. <laughs> When you see a lizard, and I know you spend some time in Florida these year, uh, these these days, uh, especially in the wintertime, what happens when you when you see a lizard in Florida these days? Do you go I, and try to smell it, or do I you do just it. laugh? No, I really I chase it and I try to smell it. And so far, I've not caught up to any of them. You know, so it's going to be a lifelong process. <laughs> I love it. I love it. So, Chris, as we're wrapping up here. If we wanted more wisdom from Chris Carr, how do we connect with you? Thank you for asking that. Um, I am at chriscarr.com and my book is available everywhere. And I am at Crazy Sexy Chris on Instagram. Yes. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. Everyone go out and get I'm Not a Morning Person, M-O-U-R-N-I-N-G by Chris Carr. It's a wonderful book about how to deal with grief um, and how to feel your feelings in the most vulnerable, honest way that I've ever seen Chris Carr write. So if you're already a fan of Chris, you are going to love this book even more. And I'm just so grateful that you came to our community today, Chris. You're a 20-year radical remission survivor, cancer thriver, who's showing us that you can absolutely, with healthy lifestyle changes, manage the chronic disease of stage four cancer, just like Carla here on the podcast is a stage four thriver of, of breast cancer. And if we can turn cancer into a chronic disease like diabetes that can be mm -hmm. managed, that's a win. And, and if we can um, use lifestyle changes 
to also help us go through periods of grief or mourning or the other ups and downs that life throws at us, then, uh, then we'll all be in a better place. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Thanks, Thanks. Thanks, Chris. And thank you for listening to the Radical Remission Project, Stories That Heal podcast. Once again, I'm Kelly A. Turner, PhD, cancer researcher and founder of the Radical Remission Project. If you found today's episode inspiring, we encourage you to share it with anyone you think would benefit. If you'd like more information about the Radical Remission Project or would like some support bringing the 10 Radical Remission Healing Factors into your own life, visit us at RadicalRemission.com to find a certified Radical Remission Health Coach or to learn about an upcoming Radical Remission Workshop. And if you'd like to connect with Liz or Carla directly for health coaching, you can visit RadicalRemission.com forward slash about us. Most importantly, be sure to like, share, and please, please, please review this podcast wherever you listen to podcasts. Your reviews are what allow us to keep finding sponsors, and sponsors are what allow us to keep bringing you these podcasts. So thank you in advance for your reviews. One last thing, would you like to be on our podcast? If you're a radical remission survivor who's been in remission for at least three years, meaning that you either have stable or dormant disease, or perhaps even no evidence of disease. You can contact us at radicalremission.com forward slash podcast. The Stories That Heal podcast is a production of the Radical Remission Project and Cat Productions, hosted by Liz Curran and Carla Mansgeroux, produced by Ryan Giroux, music by Batchbug. Follow the Stories That Heal wherever you get your podcasts.